0: My name is Duncan and this is Unorthodoxy. In this episode, I want to look very briefly at insight. This this is something that I'm just fascinated by because I'm profoundly aware of those odd moments where I'll just be pondering something and then another thought comes into view and that one thought and that other thought or maybe a few thoughts just click together and there is this, I guess the word for it is a spark, there's just this spark and I have an epiphany. Something that I've never realized before comes into view. It becomes patently clear. You know what this is like when you listen to a joke and that punchline hits you and the at the end of the joke. Um and what it does is it totally reframes everything that comes before. Or to take another example, you'll be reading a detective story, watching a detective story, and suddenly you discover that the killer wasn't the crazy guy who lives in the shed on the edge of the farm. That was just too obvious. You knew it, but it still strikes you as a shock when you discover that the real killer was that kind little boy who turns out obviously um, to have had <laughs> to have a, had a few more issues than maybe you were suspected. Not sure which story that comes from. I just made that up. Anyway, so I think metaphors describe this experience of insight particularly well, and I guess part of what I want to do here is is play with metaphors. Um, insight is when the penny drops or when something just clicks into place or when that realization just hit you, right? Like we use all these metaphors just to describe something that we feel internally is happening uh, to us. So, so try this as a different metaphor. Um, this is a metaphor for people like me who use introverted intuition um, as one of their primary or auxiliary cognitive functions. I'm sure that insight, um, I have no doubt that insight takes place for different people in different ways. So um, what I'm going to do here is just focus on introverted intuition because I know um, that that kind of thought process best. So let's say, for instance, that you have a thought. So so the metaphor I'm going to use here is the, the, the idea of a thought space. Uh, just, you know, kind of think of it as a big bubble with lots of little thoughts, these little glowing um, objects that are floating around. And that one thought that you have enters into this thought space. And the thought space is naturally already filled with other thoughts. They're all sort of floating around, kind of maybe randomly. Some are connected, some are separate. But this new thought enters into this thought space, and the most natural thing for a new thought to do is to look for a place to belong. New thoughts in a way, um at least to begin with, are always a bit homeless; they feel a little out of place, so they wander about in this already very um, busy thought space, although it is a thought space, so there is space between all of the thoughts and then in that thought space, this one idea meets another idea and then another idea, and then. Those ideas suddenly just click, and when this happens, you see something totally new, something you couldn't have anticipated, but which totally enriches your perspective. It's a bit like Idea Tetris, another metaphor, Um, although it's often played, this game, pretty unconsciously. The pieces are all there lined up even though you didn't know it. And then that one piece just fits exactly into the right place and the screen flashes and clears. And that's exactly what insight feels like to me, at least. It, it's something that, that creates clarity. It opens things up. So I want to share how I arrived at one particular insight. It, it's just the insight I happened to think of when I was uh, thinking about what insight does. And it's just really a, a new perspective that I came across, and I'm just trying to unpack the story of this insight. Maybe it'll give you a more concrete sense of how insights happen. So a few years back, I was watching World War Z, that uh, Brad Pitt movie, and it's just a fun movie because it it caters to the kind of the 13 year old kid inside me. And there's this scene where Brad Pitt's character Jerry is trying to escape from this group of zombies who are all wandering about inside the World Health Organization building and Jerry has his own moment of insight wait i should warn you there are going to be spoilers here so seriously if if you haven't seen the movie maybe you should just pause this before i wreck everything for you maybe just switch it off and watch the movie um unless you don't like zombie movies in which case don't watch the movie and um and don't count this as a spoiler, I'm basically just giving you an opportunity to not watch the movie. Anyway, um, I think it's a fun film, World War Z, and some of the stuff I've written about zombie movies, by the way, in general, is in an article called Reconfiguring Contagion, which was published in the journal Image and Text. I'll post a link to that uh, in the show notes. I'm referring to zombie movies as if I'm a huge fan. Um, I find them fascinating as cultural products, but um, yeah, I'm not going to go into that right now. So uh, if you're still with me and you're about to hear the spoiler, it's totally your fault. I hope you know that um, it's, it's not me wrecking the movie for you. It's you refusing to hit pause or stop. But anyway, it's a mainstream movie, so I hope most of you have seen it. So Jerry is the main character, and he has this moment of insight. Um, and in that mo- moment the, the, it's towards the end of the movie, obviously, there's a kind of um, group of, well, clips that are shown from, from throughout the film where all the pieces that Jerry has, has been encountering as he journeys through the world uh, fit together, and he sees the pattern. What he notices is that there are certain people that zombies. Just tend to ignore, and he doesn't really know what to do with this until he has this moment of insight. The people that zombies ignore throughout the film are people who are already sick or already dying. They're people um, the zombies don't e- want to even touch because, in some sense, they're already walking dead. the The zombie virus is driven by a kind of evolutionary imperative, it seems. So the sick aren't going to help their their cause, their cause of multiplying endlessly. So the zombies ignore these people, and Jerry suddenly clicks. The penny drops. The real strength in the war against zombies is going to be weakness, sickness, edging closer to death rather than just avoiding it, which is the sort of natural uh, human impulse. To avoid the flood of zombies, all you have to do is well, you've got to learn how to die, get a disease, so Jerry realizes this, and he is in the world- Health Organization and he injects himself with this <laughs> some new disease, well a few disease diseases um um that could potentially kill him, but thankfully also somehow miraculously he he happens to also inject himself with a disease that is curable and what happens is the zombies ignore him they don't want to eat him or bite him or whatever, as because as far as their zombie senses tell them, he's already a dead man. You don't need to convert the already converted. So there's the scene where we watch Jerry just walk through this crowd of zombies, and he's safe, and he doesn't get hurt. Okay, so that's the one thing that is um floating around in my head, that one thought. Let's say that's one thought. It's a thought made up of many thoughts, but that's that one scene is something that I'm encountering. And it also happens quite nicely to be coupled with an epiphany that happens during World War Z for the main protagonist. And you could roll with this, this um, basic scene and just create associations and figure out how it relates to other contexts and experiences. And I've done that too, but I just want to talk about this one insight. I want to give you a sense of my own experience of an insight that was happening while I was watching World War Z. A few thoughts um, at the time that I was watching this were floating around in my own thought space. They were waiting in a way to be activated by an insight, just waiting to click with other thoughts. One of those thoughts was this floating somewhere in the back of my mind was this idea that in the Middle Ages, which this this is real, uh, there was one kind of mythology around the life of Jesus that believed that he was in fact a leper and a hunchback. I know this is is a bit weird, uh, but there was this genuine idea that uh, people actually believed, especially during the Middle Ages, that Jesus was physically weak and even quite sickly. He could heal other people, of course, but he himself was one of the outcasts. he had as as the writer in this one part of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 um he had no form to attract us to him he bore our afflictions so, so i mean that was one of the ways um that medieval scholars interpreted this that actually if he was um carrying our infirmities if he was carrying our sickness and and our, our he was actually carrying that physically it wasn't just sort of metaphorical so the idea in the Middle Ages was that Jesus wasn't this Hollywood-type superhero floating mystic guy. Um, in fact, he was very, very human, very um, sickly in, in, in some sense. And this came from their reading, this medieval reading of Isaiah 53. I don't, I don't think this idea has necessarily any kind of real historical validity, but it is an idea, and because it was an idea, it was floating around in the back of my head. So that was the one thought. And then there was another idea that was floating around in my head, and and it was the scene from the fourth chapter of the book of Luke. There we have Jesus. He was this younger beginner rabbi, and he was reading a passage. It happened to be also from the book of Isaiah. So already there's a kind of conceptual link with that other thought, right? Like they're, they're already playing in the same space. And anyway, so so when Jesus reads this passage, people in the synagogue get absolutely, seriously, seriously mad at him. And they chase him out of the synagogue, and they're, they're like a mob. You could say that they're like a mob of zombies. And they chase him to the edge of a cliff, and they're about to throw him off. It is a literal cliffhanger. And there's this other idea. Okay, so that's the other idea that's floating around in my head. Then there was another idea floating in my head which is this old Jesus movie I saw. I can't even remember, there are so many, but I can't remember which one. And this scene from the book of Luke is depicted in that movie. And in this Jesus movie, Jesus has a kind of gravitas, this very very serious aura. And when he's on the edge of the cliff, he just turns around and walks through the crowd. And and for some kind of weird mystical reason no one in the crowd can touch him or wants to touch him he's just well as this movie depicts him he's kind of super powerful so it feels like a kind of magic trick it's like he's magneto and he's pushing all the kind of the i don't know the people away i don't know what it. maybe they've got like hip replacements that makes it possible for him to do this I don't know. So I've got that idea floating in my head, this this sort of Jesus movie scene. And then I've also got Robert Farrar Capon's theology floating around in my head. And Capon, by the way, is absolutely, absolutely brilliant. If you want to read a theologian who is real, who cusses and jokes and he's just profound and provocative. You have to read Capon. His stuff is really amazing. But anyway, one of the ways he reads the gospel narratives is with this idea of looking for the last, the least, the little, the lost, and the dead. You heard that. So that becomes a kind of hermeneutic key, the the last, the least, the little, the lost, and the dead. Because at the center, of the gospel is this idea that it's not about power, but about losing, about weakness, about non-success. Jesus saves us basically by not being Superman. Instead, he saves us by being Q. Joan Osborne, just a slob like one of us. Some of you, I bet you can already get a sense of the insight that I arrived at, and maybe I'm hyping it, I don't know. I'm not trying to uh make this out to be more than it is, I'm just trying to track the story of the insight. But all of these thoughts are floating around, or were at least floating around in my thought space and in my mind, and then they just clicked together. And so there's this scene in World War Z where Jerry is walking towards this group of zombies, and Jerry has just pumped this new disease into his body, and he's facing this crowd of zombies and he just walks through them unharmed and he looks a bit disheveled and he's bearded and maybe that's why i was reminded of jesus i don't know but here's the deal maybe when jesus is at the edge of a cliff and maybe when the crowd is looking looking at him and they're about to throw him off the cliff they rec- recognize not his divinity but his humanity they see hey that's that's joseph's son the carpenter boy who's been in our community all this time, and they saw him grow up, a lot of them, and maybe, I don't know, maybe he looks really kind of weak and just harmless, and they don't want to attack him anymore because they see their humanity in him, the way that the zombies in World War Z saw walking death in Jerry. Maybe they leave him alone because they have an epiphany of their own. This guy isn't out to hurt anyone, so why are we trying to hurt him? I know there's a lot more to this in a way. Um, maybe this doesn't strike you t- as being particularly insightful. Honestly, it just happens to be the insight that came to mind when I was thinking about insights, because I I was acutely aware of all these different thoughts floating in my head and the way that they fitted together. Um, but it's it's really good to think about, because this insight still transformed the way I understood that one particular passage of scripture. Um, And I don't want to make it too literal or too solid, because I realized I am reading into it. I'm doing a kind of hermeneutics according to World War Z, which is weird. Like, it's not the thing you think about naturally when you're uh, reading something, uh, reading the Bible. Uh, you don't want to necessarily just impose hey like i was watching this movie and uh let me just see what the movie gives to to the scripture but but i think it is a really amazing thing to take thoughts that are unrelated or seem unrelated and see how they play off each other and and what kinds of insights could arise from that interaction of thoughts it made me realize this this whole uh this epiphany that i had it, It made me realize that it's harder, in some ways, to recognize Jesus's humanity than it is to recognize his divinity. It's harder to think of Jesus as as having B.O. and being slightly shy and occasionally saying the wrong thing and getting the flu. Uh, It's harder to think of him in these terms than it is to put him on a pedestal. We're more comfortable, generally, with Jesus's divinity than we are with his humanity, which is is kind of weird, right? Like, why? are we uncomfortable with his humanity well maybe it's because we're uncomfortable with our own but the point here is not just the meaning that i derived from this particular group of thoughts interacting but how the insight worked it's really profound to have insights that challenge stale overly familiar ways of seeing an insight is simply it's simply the the reward of a particular process of cognition there's the setup, like the setup of a joke or a short story or a movie, and then there's the moment when all those loose ends are tied up. An insight rewards concludes a particular cognitive process. But the thing is, we need to be open to even be able to have insights. And in a world that is overly demanding, overly busy, overly task oriented, overly drenched in meaningless banalities. Insights are just more difficult to come by. So here are a few things I've learned for increasing the likelihood that insights will occur. The most obvious thing is that we need time to dwell in non-achievement. Meditation is profoundly helpful on this point, and I find that centering prayer really helps because it makes no demands of any idea or thought It doesn't even make any demands of any epiphany, which I think is really great. And it doesn't force anything to fit into a kind of preconceived box. Thoughts are allowed to float when you're in a meditative space. And it's kind of one of the reasons that um, a lot of ideas happen when you're taking a shower or going on a relaxing drive. So the first principle is rest. Relax and wait. Insights will come to you. The second thing that helps uh, for encouraging insight in my experience is to make space for non-judgmental exploration. This obviously links to to what I've just said. Um, Often we look at things that are new with suspicion, and the best thing for insights is to just not judge, to refuse to judge in a way. Just let the ideas be what they are. This means that the insight itself will not become a dogma. It'll remain the result of a playful, open posture towards life, and it'll continue to be that. So that's step two, or principle two, which is don't judge. And then linked with this idea is the idea of of being open to otherness. Allow thoughts that don't necessarily obviously belong together to collide and kiss and float around in your thought space. Read widely, of course, that really helps me and try to to, um, fit things together that aren't uh, naturally part of your experience. I find it helpful to read a few books at at the same time, and I don't necessarily try to block each book's thought space from the thought space of other books. So I might end up reading about phenomenology and ecology and design, for instance, and then naturally I'm going to ask, or I'm just going to kind of let those thoughts intermingle, and then arrive at a question, what do these things have to do with each other? How do they overlap? What, they can, what can, can I learn from the way they interact? And so that's really uh, principle three for, for helping um, us to arrive at in, insights, which is just forget compartmentalizing things. Just let things be what they are and let them float and interact. So principle one is relax and wait. Principle two, don't judge. Principle three, don't compartmentalize. There's probably more stuff that I I do that I haven't even accounted for here, because I think the general thing is actually that insights arise out of a particular posture that we have towards life. How we position ourselves in relation to reality is going to matter hugely. But these three principles seem to be key to me. Chilling, not judging, not insisting that everything stays in boxes. I know that there'll probably be some out there who will be offended by this idea that I've just taken World War Z and used that um, to inform my view of scripture, together with, of course, that, that medieval story about Jesus being a leper. I mean, like, maybe some people will find that offensive. I don't know. It's not my business. And anyway, those people don't concern me. They're probably just very boring people who've never had any new ideas of their own. What I'd say to them, though, and what I'd really encourage anyone to do in, in, in any case is this. Learn to love insights. Just for what they are, appreciate the way that they open doors and new ways of seeing and understanding. Of course, don't cling too tightly to any specific outcome or aspect of the process. As I kind of hinted at already, insight does not equate to dogma. It's just a, a kind of playful posture that we can have, a way of playing with ideas and playing with our understanding. I know that many of you have had insights of your own, and I'm sure each insight has a story. Have you thought about those stories? I mean, maybe some some of what I've done here, which is just I mean, I'm just recalling one insight, but it's kind of cool to reflect on on the story that that insight um, has, because it does have a story. Insights are amazing, I find, because they can illuminate dark spaces. They can Of course, uh, uh, insights can be dark spaces of their own. They can actually disturb and unsettle. But they're helpful, especially when they are part of our search for truth. So that's it for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you are keen to support the unorthodoxy podcast i'd be really grateful uh, you can do that through patreon and if you want to get in touch with me you can email me at unorthodoxy at zoaho.com. i'll put all of that into the show notes as well take care everyone